You're listening to episode 68 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Gregory Howe. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well and having a fantastic week. I want to ask you one question. Have you ever dreamed about quitting your job to play on the pro tennis circuit and travel the world? Well, that's exactly what Gregory Howe did, and he wrote a book about it. And that's why I'm super excited to interview Greg on this episode of the Tennis Files podcast to get an insight into his adventures traveling around the world, playing uh, pro tournaments, playing against incredible level of players, uh, many of whom have either made it to the big time or have really been... uh, trying their hand and struggling and grinding through the tour to eventually one day make it. And uh, I really enjoyed reading Greg's book, uh, detailing his adventures, and I highly encourage you to check out his book. Uh, it's a really enjoyable read, and if you want to check it out, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash chasing points to get that book. But I am going to interview Greg, and he's going to talk about his book, uh, the countries he's been to, his highest points, his lowest points, and uh, some great successes in uh, achieving uh, one of his dreams. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Greg. And without further ado, here is my interview with Gregory Howe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. And I'm really excited to have Gregory Howe on the podcast. Uh, I was actually looking through Amazon for some tennis books, and I came upon uh, a book called Chasing Points, a season on the pro tennis circuit. Uh, And I noticed it was by Gregory Howe. And then I looked into what the book was all about, and I really fell in love with the the premise of it, and I've really been enjoying reading it so far. And so a bit of background on Greg. Uh, At 34 years of age, Greg actually quit teaching in London to chase his childhood dream of becoming a world-ranked tennis professional. Uh, Greg started uh, a year-long journey in the minor leagues of tennis, which we'll talk about uh, in the interview, playing across many continents, uh, some as far as uh, Bangkok, Kampala, and Lahore. Uh, And he eventually broke through to the Elite ATP Tour and uh, got within, as they say, volleying distance of some of the greats of the game. And he also uh, managed to juggle uh, at some points working with playing on the tour. And it's just really an amazing uh, story that actually happened uh, of Greg, you know, just putting his foot down and chasing his dream and then uh, really just uh, accomplishing great things on the tour. So, Greg, I really, really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. And uh, I just want to ask you, too, is there anything else that you might want to add to that? No, hi, Maribyrn. Um, no, it's a pretty fair description of the book. Um, I probably imagine the book is something that a lot of 
your listeners can relate to. Uh, let's face it, anyone that's played tennis at any level in the amateurs has probably watched the pros on TV or gone to see them live and pictured themselves out there and just wondered, you know, what would it be like if I played the pros? Um, and if I was out there against the Roger Federer, how would I go? And I was literally in that position. I was a 34-year-old school teacher. I was a good amateur tennis player. And I wanted to find out for myself. So that's the whole premise behind the book where I quit my job. And as you described, I played pro tennis for one year on the circuit. Awesome stuff, Greg. Uh, getting really excited to have you on. And it's, it's funny, you know, because uh, a couple years ago, uh, actually on episode 21 of the podcast, I detailed how I tried my hand at playing a futures event on Charlottesville. Uh, <laughs> it was really a lot of fun. I, I drew an 1100 uh, ranked player in the world the first round and got, uh, I think, a game. Uh, <laughs> it was it was great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, tough experience, but I really enjoyed it. And, you know, just like like you did, uh, well, you know, I, I have dreamed on occasions about getting an ATP point and it's it's really not yeah. easy at all, as we'll talk about. Yes. Yeah. You kept that one very quiet, Maraban. I didn't realize that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> the secret is out. But um, just, just to, you know, ask you about your beginnings, Greg, because it's always fun to talk about how people got into the game. Uh, how did you get your start playing tennis? Yeah, I, I grew up in country Australia in a city called Gladstone, which is a pretty isolated city up the coast. And this is way back in the 1980s. And so tennis was still booming then. And it was a very popular sport. And I started quite late. I started tennis lessons at 11. It wasn't my main sport. I, I played cricket, which I know Americans don't understand at all, but it's sort of the national sport in Australia. And, but my younger brother, who I played on the tour with, he was a very good junior. And because he was already going well, I, I basically I was pushed into having lessons. So I began the first tournaments probably in the last year, the under-12s. And I fell in love with it. So that's how my tennis career began. Wonderful. And it, it was really nice reading about how uh, at certain points you and Andrew both uh, travel together to certain tournaments and things like that. So it's really great to have a sibling, um, you know, in the game as well to, to try to push you. But... Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've been playing well, probably 40 years we've been doing this since the juniors. And even when I played this year, although he didn't play, um, he was with me. Uh, so it's something where we, we've been doing for 40 years, which makes it really special. Yeah, for sure. Definitely special. Um, and from reading, it sounds like maybe you take certain, you know, sentimental aspects of it, uh, more sentimentally <laughs> than him, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's cool. And, uh, funny too about yeah. cricket. I had neighbors, um, back, uh, many years ago, uh, who were, I think were Indian and they would play cricket, uh, in the yard. I think they combined yeah. a couple yards and, uh, Pretty cool game, so that, that's kind of neat that you're yeah. in that as well. Um, but yeah. but uh, also, Greg, I mean, obviously, uh, there's a lot of people who they they have role models, you know, when they're growing up, um, when they're trying to accomplish things. So, did you have any role models when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, Pat Cash was the big Australian at the time, um, and everyone, I guess, liked him, even though he was sort of semi popular in Australia. Um, but for me. I grew up in country Australia and I was fascinated with the outside world and I couldn't really travel much. So for me, I, I liked these exotic guys from overseas. And and also my personality is I don't like the big stars. If I go watch a Grand Slam, I have no interest in centre court. I'd much rather be out on court 25 watching journeymen. Mm. So the guys who are my role models 
and I'm really going to test your listeners' knowledge of 1980s tennis here, <laughs> were guys like Michael Pernfors, mm-hmm. who won back-to-back NCAs with Georgia, uh, Derek Restagno, I don't know if you remember this guy, um, a real iconoclast would turn up to tournaments on a Harley Davidson or drive a VW Comfy around to tournaments. Um, Ronald Arginor. These were the guys that I've sort of really, I guess, related to. They were the journeymen. Um, and they're also very exotic. So, yeah, they, they were my role models, if that makes sense. Excellent. And definitely heard of a couple of them and a couple I haven't. But as yeah. far as your, your career, I mean, you even just looking at your ITF profile, you played a ton of tournaments. So I wanted you to talk about, uh, before we get into the pro experience, about some of the peaks and valleys of your junior career and how that went for you. Yeah, I'd say my junior career had more valleys than peaks, um, to be honest. I started quite late and because I, I grew up in country Australia. Um, there weren't that many people to practice with. And so I quickly became one of the good juniors, let's say when I was 12 and 13, in my city with my brother. And we naturally started playing in the central Queensland circuit, the cities within maybe two or three hours' drive. And I was getting better. I'd maybe make the quarterfinals of these small junior tournaments. And then I realised at about 15 or 16 that we needed to go to the big city if we are going to develop. So we would... It was 600 kilometers away. We'd have to, after school on Fridays, take the over overnight Greyhound bus, and it'd probably take us eight or nine hours, go to the tournament in Brisbane on the weekend, uh, play the tournaments, and then come back on the Sunday night in time for school. And we did this week in, week out. And my game collapsed, basically. It wasn't up to the standard of these top juniors. And, I, and in the last year, under 16, I won one match. Um, it so for three years in my junior career, I, I, I wasn't even in the top 50 of the state, if that makes sense. I wasn't a great junior. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that makes it even more amazing about, you know, what we'll talk about uh, soon, yep. coming up soon. But uh, regarding your, and I found this just a wonderful story to pretty much start out the book. You talk about your very first pro uh, tournament experience, uh, or one of the very first that got you hooked on wanting yep. to get into that environment and and a pivotal you know pivotal moment so can you kind of talk about that experience that you had yeah it was 1988 uh which is exactly 30 years ago and i'll give you the context obviously this is pre-internet and it's also a time before cable tv so the city where i was from literally we got the wimbledon final and we got the us open final we didn't even get to watch the australian open so we were starved of of any sort of te- television or tennis at all. And suddenly one year they decided to give my city the opening leg of what they called then the satellite circuit. And in 1988, there weren't many satellites. There was maybe three on at the time. So it was an open qualies and the draw was way over 100 people turned up. And and from, from never seeing any professional tennis to suddenly seeing these guys, all the college players from America coming, uh, Mexicans were there, all the Europeans and the best players of Australia – Suddenly, the pro game came to us, and it was fascinating to see. Um, and I would remember practicing on the court next door to these players, and I was saying, oh, you know, we just came back from Luxembourg. With, and my brother and I, we'd never heard of these places. We had to go home and look on the atlas, like, where is Luxembourg? Mm-hmm. And this really started opening my eyes that tennis could be a window to the world. Um, and I was hooked. From then on, that's all I wanted to do. Wow. And uh, interesting little, I guess, point that I – I found in the book is you use the word 
exotic Mexicans when you were describing all the different types of people <laughs> that were there. Was there anything in particular that made them exotic? It was, I mean, everything about them. Uh, in country Australia, you had Australians. That was it. Um, so everyone was exotic. But the Mexicans, their game back then, they had a lot of slices, a lot of chips. The styles were very much more varied than today. Um, and so just looking at the different styles, uh, the Mexicans, you know, they, they were they, everything about them was so different. They were artistic on the court. Um, and from I've never I never really saw much tennis. Everything I'd know was from books and magazines. So I guess that's why I called it exotic. For me, in country Australia back in the eighties, this was exotic. Awesome, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and so, it you know, with that the match that you had, I mean, obviously it was a, a tough go around in that first one, but I mean, still, you know, a lot of people, you know, if they experience a negative event uh, that happens, they would just give up. So, what do you think's the difference between? people like that and then other people who have negative experiences but still somehow get even more hooked onto something yeah that's a that's a fair question isn't it um i mean that year was also the year that i won one junior match and if i was going to quit sport that would have been it you know that would crush many people but for me i always felt that i would be able to drag my game up to the next level so i didn't mind the fact that i was losing then and I didn't mind the fact that I got wiped off the court in about 25 minutes during my first pro experience because for me this was a sighter where I needed to be so I knew that if I worked at my game eventually I would get up to that level and that's a philosophy which I stay with me the rest of my life and it's definitely uh, during the tour when I, well, I wrote the book about this is what I had in mind when I played the ATPs so uh, this is why I never quit I never even thought of quitting it didn't matter Fantastic. And that, yeah, that's a great point that really what it comes down to, I think, is that internal belief, you know, despite any setbacks that, you know, I know that I can get better. This is just kind of like a, I, I just have to ride this wave and keep improving and then I'll, I'll reach greater heights, which is exactly what you did. And that's very uh, inspiring. Um, and, and so in the book, you said that um, your ultimate goal was to get an ATP ranking, and but but that goal at the same time would end up fascinating, haunting, and motivating you for the rest of your life. And so, given that it's almost yeah. Halloween, or it probably will be <laughs> Halloween when you listen to this, how did that goal in particular yeah. end up haunting you? Yeah, that's a that's a fair question. Also, um, it didn't haunt me until I stopped when I was about thirty. Up to that point, that was my motivation. Um, back in that first pro tournament, they put the entire rankings list which went to about 900 in 1988, on the wall. When I saw that list, um, I realized this was what I, I wanted to see my name on this ATP ranking list. So all through university, all through when I was working as a teacher in my holidays, my goal was to play the futures and try to get this ATP. So it wasn't haunting me then. But I stopped at about 30. All my other friends were stopping. And I thought, I'm 30 years old now. You know, I'll, I'll never make it. I'm too old. And maybe when I was 31, 32, it was the idea that perhaps I hadn't given myself a really good shot. I don't mind failing at something, but when you don't give it 100%, and deep down you know this, and this was a dream I let go, this is what haunted me. And it's probably what drove me to make one final comeback at 34. Gotcha. And then so as far as not giving yourself 
uh, the best shot you could. I mean, was that did that just mean that you didn't devote like all the effort that you could and time into it? Yeah, um, I mean, I was a school teacher. I had big summer holidays, but obviously the money was limited. I didn't play the places where I thought it could go well. I found myself with my friends on a really tight budget, sleeping in flea pits for five dollars a night in Cairo, trying to compete against clay quarters on clay, and. And just as I started to get my form, it was time to go back to work. And I did this year in, year out. And it, it was great. It was fun. It was like backpacking, but it didn't give myself a chance. I didn't even qualify in the future for, for two decades. Um, and so that's what I mean by I just give myself. I didn't give myself a shot, uh, basically, in order to maximize my potential. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I mean, you were, you were doing well, um, you know, in life. You had a solid job, uh, and you seemingly had your life all put together. Um, so, I mean, what would you say made you quit and 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 allowed you to make that decision? You know, despite like you having such a great life, you know, already set up for you, knowing the the risks that were to come and all the other, you know, financial and other, um, you know, things that you had to consider. I mean, I don't see life as simply working. I would hate to be 80 years old to look back at my life and then have regrets when you can't do anything about it. So it wasn't a big decision for me to quit my job. Um, and I realized at 34, my time was running out in order to follow this dream. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, I knew I could always go back to teaching. The job will always be there. Um, so I didn't think twice. When I realized that, hang on, I mean, I want to give myself one last chance. Um, there was no second doubting myself. Um, and the same to go with writing the book also. Um, I didn't want to have the regret because I had the idea of writing the book before of not actually trying to finish it. Uh, so I sort of keep this attitude. Gotcha. And so maybe this will help other people out there who want to quit and pursue their dream or just straight up quit. But <laughs> one thing that I don't yeah. remember you uh, reading in the book is I was curious about like how you – approached your or boss about that and i mean did you once you made the decision did you did you wait another day and talk to him and like what did you say to him i mean how did that go i think in the book i put in italics not speech marks that i told him to go shove his job um and that's what something i probably would have liked to have said to my boss but i i sort of made the decision and it's as it happened in the book i was later working at night and i was checking the, the rankings and i had sort of an epiphany um but i sort of I thought about it for a while, um, even though I'd made my decision. And maybe it was a, a week or two later, I went down there and said, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm resigning. Um, and then when I told the boss, well, you know, I'm going to go play tennis, he sort of he looked at me really strangely. He, he, no one could understand what I was doing. Um, and they still probably can't, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but in my mind, it was the right thing to do. For sure. I mean, it's something that was you know, inside of you, a uh, yearning to, to, to pursue your dream. And I mean, that, that's what you need to need it to do. And you did. Um, and it's very courageous yep. as well. Um, and I just curious too, what, um, you know, what did your wife think about your decision as well? I mean, when you talked about it, <laughs> she's my girlfriend then wife now, right. um, yeah, she, she knew what she was buying into. I'd played tennis before and I'd often got her to, to travel with me, um, uh, when I was playing, um, and as she was fully supportive. And at this time, she'd already moved out to Dubai to work for Emirates Airline. And so in my mind, I was going out there. I'd based myself in Dubai. 
and I'd fly off to all these tournaments. So she was very supportive. Uh, it wasn't a, it was not a problem at all. That's awesome. And so, I mean, were you able to, uh, if you don't mind disclosing, were you able to, um, you know, fly, uh, because she worked for Dubai, like get deals on that or fly free or anything? Yeah, I had a very good experience when I was after the, I think chapter two, I played in Australia on the way from Australia flying to Africa. She was working on that flight. So it was the only time it ever happened, but I got upgraded to business class. She was working in business class, so she got to be my was air, air, air stewardess for that for that leg, and that was a great experience. Um, I got Dom Perignon champagne brought down to me. Got pictures, you know. It was, it was I felt like a superstar. So yeah, it was great. I can't believe it, Greg. You were drinking before a tournament. What were you thinking? <laughs> my God, uh, it's Dom Perignon champagne. It's, it's excusable. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I'm kidding. Um, so, also, I mean, as I just mentioned, with you know, when you go on tour, and I've talked about this to other pro players on the podcast, especially those on the Challenger and Futures tour. I mean, there's a lot of financial planning involved. I mean, you usually don't get very big payouts on these uh, lower level tournaments. So, you know, when you decided to go pursue your dream and play on the pro circuit around the world, financially, did you have any particular plans or a budget uh, that you made for your impending uh, travels? Yeah, I mean, I knew that the worst thing that could happen is that I run out of money and I couldn't finish my year. I wanted to be able to play one year full time without worrying about work, money or anything. And only then I could know, give myself the best shot. And it was really hard to know how much money you would need. Mm-hmm. So I, I saved up about 15,000 US dollars. In the end, my year on the tour cost me about 24,000 US dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to go back in the middle and do a, like a couple of months extra work. But I was injured anyway, so it wasn't so much of a problem. So I think, yeah, about 24000 was how much it cost me. And then my prize money in that year was about 2000 or $3,000. Uh, so not a great return. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, it's actually, that surprised me a bit. And maybe I'll, uh, I'm going to dive a little deeper into that. So twenty four k for a year's worth uh, of tournaments on the tour doesn't sound really that bad. And I'm curious, let's see, because I guess probably a lot of other, uh, some players would spend more too. So how many, uh, first off, how many tournaments, because uh, I, I forgot how many in the book, how many tournaments did you play that year? And then, I mean, did you have any other expenses like, I don't know, practice partners or coaching or anything? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I don't know how many tournaments I played that year. Um, I know I traveled to 18 countries in the book. Gotcha. Um, I didn't, I didn't have a coach and most, a lot of the time I was traveling with my brother. So that halved a lot of costs. Mm. Um, also I learned a lot of tricks over the years from a lot of the Australian players and these guys, they're away from home and they're on quite tight budgets and they get a lot of these round the world tickets where you, um, you can buy one big ticket and you add sectors on. So you can actually, just for maybe a handful of uh, thousand US dollars, you actually get a lot of flights. So there are ways in order to keep the cost down, if that makes sense. Um, I'm sure you could spend a lot more if you're going back and forward just on return flights. Sure. Now that makes a lot of sense. And did you, um, as far as, you know, we talk about the saving money, did you uh, ever get housing from uh, like host families at all? No, no, I didn't even like that in the juniors, to be honest. Um, it's not something I'm comfortable with. I like hotels. I like my own space. So I, I never do housing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you'll have to deal with 
people. I mean, you know, for some that's perfect, but for others, you just want to be alone. I'm kind of like that too, more introverted. Yeah. And so for some of the viewers out there who aren't exactly sure uh, or able to distinguish between the different tours out there, could you explain to to us the difference between the different levels on tour, which are uh, Futures and then Challengers uh, and then the ATP tour level events? Yeah. Yeah, there's three levels of the pro game. And obviously everyone knows the top ATP tour, and that's with the Grand Slams and the Roger Federer's, the Nadal's. These guys are at the ATP. And – the third level is where anyone starts. So obviously you've had the experience also. Um, you start off in the qualifying of the futures. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, I'd like to I like to describe the three circuits. I imagine they're like bottles. And the, the futures circuit is a big bottle at the bottom. 14,000 players come in at the bottom and about 2,000 players, the world ranked, sort of go out, out of the top of this bottle. And then you've got the next bottle above that, and that's the challenger circuit, if you can visualize this. And that bottle's smaller. So maybe 2,000 players can play the challengers, of which maybe 300 get out and go on to the ATP circuit. Um, I don't know if that's a good explanation or, or not, but that's sort of the three levels of the pro game. And obviously, as you go up to the next level, it gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, very solid. And then also you talk a bit about ITF versus ATP. So uh, can you remind me which or the audience which um, tournaments ITF and ATP run? Yeah. Um, I mean, the ITF has been around for, I think, over 100 years. That's the tradition. And they run the Grand Slams, Wimbledon, the US Open, the French Open. They run Davis Cup and they run the Bottom Futures Tour. Um, the ATP, which I think began 1990, uh, they do the – that's like the glamour. They do the ATP circuit. And they also run the second-level challenger circuit. Um, and in a way, they're very, very different, uh, but they work together. There's only one ATP ranking list. Um, so the ATP is like the glamour, the top players, and the ITF, I always see it as a tradition. Great, great explanation, Greg. And so you mentioned that you crave to live the life of a touring pro and – um, what specifically about the touring life is it that drew you to that the most? Um, to travel around the world, to go to countries that you would normally never have a reason to go to, um, and to travel with your friends, and in my case, my brother, playing a sport you love. For me, it's, probably, it's the best thing I, I can imagine doing. Um, I cannot imagine a better life than this. Also, I mean, I didn't have the pressure of trying to make a living out of it. I knew I, I had some money behind me, so it took a lot of the pressure off. But in the end, I think I counted the other day, I played tennis in over 50 countries. Mm. And countries that like Sudan, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you normally wouldn't go to these countries. So tennis was like a passport for me to go to these really sort of exotic, strange countries. And yeah, That's really amazing. And uh, did you have to get any like i guess uh um shots or anything like that you know before you went to certain countries <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you hear warnings from a lot of other players and i played senegal before i went to senegal i had every shot under the earth you know i had everything i had malaria tablets because i heard the year before a lot of these players didn't and six players caught malaria wow um so yeah i, I made sure i had the yellow fever i had everything um obviously you don't want to get sick of course, as soon as I flew out to Africa, I met a young Canadian guy um, on the plane and he made a last minute to, to travel and he hadn't had any shots. 
Mm. Um, so of course he was he was freaking out in Africa every time a mosquito came close to him. Um, yeah, but no, I was well prepared. Jeez, yeah, I hope you wore a, a long sleeve over there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so but so your recounting of your experiences is truly remarkably detailed and and wonderful to read. I've really been enjoying it, as I mentioned. But did you? I mean, how did you approach this? Did you firstly? take notes of what happened each day uh, or some other frequency? And also, did you plan on writing a book about your experience before you started um, uh, that experience? Yeah. No, I, uh, I had the idea to possibly write a book afterwards. Um, but I, I did everything naturally, if that made sense. I didn't do anything special. I didn't go out of my way to talk to people with a book in mind. But every time I had a conversation or an encounter that I thought might be interesting, I wrote them down. Um, so by the end, I had a good three solid notebooks, big, thick notebooks full of ideas, ideas, experiences, and especially conversations because I, I ended up writing it eight years later. Um, and I put all these in a box at the end. Um, unfortunately, I tried to write this book three times before and I, I felt it wasn't good. So I put this box away. And every time I saw the box with all my notes, it just reminded me of the failure to write this book. Um, so in a way I had, I had a lot of notes, um, but that helped me to write the book. If that answers your question. Yeah, it sure does. It's very, very neat as well. And just, uh, yeah, it's a seemingly nitpicky question, but I'm curious, like what kind of, uh, notebook did you use? Did you use the same notebook, uh, same type of notebook each time or how, how was, uh, which ones did you use? Yeah, my wife bought me these really, really heavy, um, uh, I can't even describe them very expensive looking notebooks to keep with all these notes in of course i had to lug them around in my tennis bag and they're also they were very they were very uh, i guess exotic looking like indiana jones had the world map on so i was always a bit careful pulling these out at the you know the in front of tennis players writing notes because it, it looked a little bit arty if that makes sense <laughs> um yeah but it, they're very nice and when i finished the book i got all my notes all the books and also the first copy of the book that was sent to me and I put them in a box and I'll store that away for the future. Uh, so that's a need for you. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Very cool, very cool. It sounds like a very good quality <laughs> notebook. Um, and uh, yep. also, as far as what you lugged around to each country, what can you tell us about like how many bags you brought and what, what were in those bags? Not every item, but just generally. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned my lessons as I went. At the start, um, I put everything in. I, I was scared about seeing six. I had noodles. I had my traveling kettle. You know, I, I had too many clothes. I had everything. I had clay shoes, hard shoes, grass court shoes. Um, it was ridiculous. And I was trying to travel around Africa in these little minivans with this enormous big wheelie bag, including the tennis bag. And, of course, you're trying to cram it into the play bus and bring it out. Um, but by the end, I literally had a really small bag. So I was heading away to ATV tournaments, often with just one bag, and I, I wouldn't even check in. Um, so by the end, I learned my lesson. I was traveling light. Uh, I didn't need a lot of the other stuff. Oh, fantastic. So then just your your racket bag and then just one bag, travel bag. 
Yeah, by the end, I didn't even have that. I, oh. I had one sort of whole door. Yeah, I mean, I, I got really clever with it. I'd have, I'd often, I had one pair of shoes, I'd have two shorts, three tennis shirts, uh, you know, a couple of socks, my rackets, all stuffed in there, um, and that was it. And I, and so I didn't even, yeah, I just walk around the ATP with everything I owned. Um, it was good. So, Greg, you talk about um, early in the book about, you know, one of your first tournament experiences after you decided to go on this uh, journey to uh, get an ATP point uh, in Thailand, where you went to an academy to train with uh, juniors there. And 45 minutes into that morning training session, you had to give up. Uh, you know, I guess you're uh, dehydrated and, and just it was just a tough experience. So how are you feeling about your prospects for the next day's futures tournament uh, after that session? Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is how my tour began. I had a round-the-world ticket, and Thailand was my first tournament. And I remember looking on the internet, and I, well, there's a full-time uh, training squad there with all the best Asian juniors. And it was run by a guy called Dominic Utzinger, who was a former coach of Roger Federer back when Federer was in the juniors. So I thought, I'm going to go out there early, and I'll get a couple of days really good practice before the tournament, you know, train with the pros. And this was the first training session. The humidity was it was intense. And 45 minutes into the session uh, with Federer's ex-coach, my legs had gone. Um, he said, maybe I'm dehydrated. But in actual fact, my fitness wasn't up to the level required. And I remember just lying there. I was covered, covered in sweat. My legs had turned to jelly. And I just had to tell Roger Federer's ex-coach, I'm sorry, I, I just can't continue. Uh, so it was a real wake-up call because I thought I was fit going into the tour um, when actual fact uh, I wasn't fit compared to a lot of these guys who are full-time. Uh, so that's how my tour began. Yeah. It's a, again, you know, it's just really wonderful to be able to read all the ups and downs and your experiences in, in all the different countries. Cause I mean, you detail not just, you know, tennis matches, but also your traveling experiences, life experiences. So it's really, really wonderful to read. Um, and uh, yeah, what were some of the biggest ups and downs that you experienced in the several months leading up to you know so bigger successes? Yeah, I mean, the ups were obviously when I qualified for the first time in Namibia, and it was the four actually uh, I got to count here the fifth tournament in my tour, and my African leg had started, and Africa was where I. I really thought my big opportunities would, would come, and I had about five tournaments planned. So week two of Africa, I was in Namibia, and I qualified, and I ended up playing in the first round the Namibian number one player who had just played in Wimbledon Junior semifinals of the doubles event, and he was about 1,000 in the world. And it went to three sets, and I just couldn't quite do it, um, but I got really close. In, 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 in hindsight, I probably should have won that match, but nerves took over. I was so close to for my this dream since I was 16 years old, and uh, I just I choked. I choked in the first set. Uh, so this was probably the, the the biggest up. Unfortunately, I hadn't realised it at the time. But at the very start of the African tour, I managed to rip my abdominal wall um, in Uganda, and for me to get onto the tennis court, I required about an hour of physio every time, whether for practice or a match. Um, and then probably an hour physio straight after the match. And it was getting worse and worse. And I think by week three in Africa, I remember it was in 
Botswana and I was playing a South African and I was running across and I felt the other side of my abdominal wall just rip. It was like a knife went in. I ended up lying on the court. People thought I'd run into the fence. Um, so I ripped both sides of my abdominal wall and that was the end of the tour. Uh, and that hit a low point. I was still, I still had a couple of tournaments left in Africa. I had my flights. I couldn't go anywhere and I could not play. Um, and it was, it was terrible. I had to stop and actually go get an operation. So that was absolute low point. Wow. Wow. It's incredible stuff. And what was the mindset when that happened? Cause once again, you know, in times like these, some people end up saying, that's it. Like I'm not meant for this. Other people, you know, come back and, and succeed. So what was the mindset, uh, you know, immediately after that happened and, and during your recovery? Yeah. I mean, I think I began one of those chapters in the casino in Botswana. Love it. Um, yeah, <laughs> late night at casinos. That's how. That's where my African tennis tour was going. <laughs> it's trying to make um, the money back, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to forget about tennis for a while. It was a horrible feeling to build up so much uh, hope and actually know. And I didn't know what exactly was wrong. It wasn't until I got to the last leg in South Africa and they sent me away to a hospital and the doctor said, listen, you've ripped both sides of your, your abdominal wall. It won't repair. You need a surgery. Um, and so in my mind, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I pulled out all the tournaments. I looked up the best hernia hospital in the world, which was in London. I booked it in. It was going to cost me about 4,000 US dollars. And I said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to, you know, get better and, and go back on the tour. There wasn't any chance I was going to give up. So that was my mindset. Awesome. Love that. Love that perseverance right there. And so obviously one of the biggest parts of the book is, you know, how you were able to finally achieve your dreams. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that, you know, the leading up to it and, and the experience. Yeah, it was after I came back on the tour. I went back to London, had my operation. I built my game up and I was playing in Tunisia and I played the first week and I got absolutely killed on the clay. A guy that was sort of like a, a Rafa Nadal game, he pulled me into the corners, this Italian, and I had a really bad feeling after the match that I don't think I'm going to actually get a point. I can't get out of qualifying. And even if I beat this guy, there'd be even better players in the main draw. So maybe I actually, I'm just not good enough. I'll give it the best shot. But I sort of, I just felt I know, it's not going to happen. And it's amazing how, that, how close you are to success. And I went to the next tournament, which was in Carthage in Tunisia. And suddenly, I got a bit of a lucky draw with the, the draw. I didn't have a world-ranked person in my section of the qualifying. And I looked at it, and I thought, I can, I can get through this. And I toughed my way through the qualifying to qualify for my second tournament. And this is where you need a little bit of luck. You look in that main draw. You don't want to be drawing number 200 in the world and have to beat him to get one ATP point. And, of course, I went back to the hotel. I looked at the draw, and I was up against Malik Jaziri who is now about 60 in the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's it. I, you know, this is my big chance. And I, I've got the local clay court god in Tunisia in his home club. I'm just going to get killed. Um, so my mindset wasn't great going into the match. Um, but he twisted his ankle a week before. And no one had seen him practice. And rumor was going around that maybe he couldn't play. Uh, so the next morning I turned up to the club and... He turned up, Malik Jaziri, and he had a doctor's note. He clearly couldn't walk, and he withdrew. And that means a lucky loser was going to come in out of the qualifying. 
And at this point, I realized this was my one chance. I, I knew at the start of the tour that somewhere along the line, I'd probably get one opportunity, a really good opportunity to break through. And when this happened, I better take it with both hands. And as soon as I realized that Jazeera had pulled out and I'm putting a lucky loser in, in my mind, um, this was the one opportunity. Uh, so I was ready for that, for, for, for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I actually interviewed Malik Jaziri, I think last year wow. at, yeah, actually not on the podcast, but um, at the City Open because I cover that event okay. annually. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> I mean, he's a great player, amazing player, and uh, yeah. also wears cool clothing. Uh, his shorts were very <laughs> eclectic, I guess. Yes. Um, but <laughs> in any yeah. case, uh, that that's just wonderful. And I mean, kind of what were you thinking, you know, on the, like, what was your mentality on the last point? Yeah, I mean, for two decades, I had this dream. And in many ways, I always pictured that if I ever was playing for an ATP point, it would be deep in the third set and it would be like a third set tiebreaker and the pressure would be huge. And I pictured I would serve and volley. In my mind, if I had this, this one last point for an ATP ranking, I was going to serve and volley. And every time I tried to dream this, I always dumped the volley in the net. Um, <laughs> so it, it was like a nightmare, a recurring nightmare. <laughs> so by the time... When I got my, I was playing this French lucky loser and I actually went to three sets. And so I was reliving my dream. But he had choked. The pressure had gotten too much for him. And in the third set, he'd completely capsized. So by the time I was serving for my ATP point, I was 5 0 up in the third set. It doesn't mean you're going to win. I was still very tight, but I knew that I dreamt about this for two decades. So on that match point, I serve and volleyed. Um, do you want me to tell you how it ended? If you'd like, yes, and I, I know it, but uh, if you want to tell the listeners, <laughs> yeah. it's just crazy. Yeah, I, I, I served and volleyed. It was a second serve, to be honest. I served and volleyed, top spin. It went right into his wheelhouse. He ripped the hardest forehand possible. And it didn't matter to me. I, I was so deep in the zone that I actually ended up doing a backhand half volley with top spin. Um, I don't know. I've never tried that shot Insane. again, and it raced away for a winner. Um, I was stunned. He was stunned. And, and literally, this is how I, um, I made my ATP point. Um, I can still picture it today. <laughs> it's that good. That's, I mean, that's, it's incredible. I love hearing that um, yeah. again. And, and I mean, do you have any insights into, I mean, if we all knew this, then we'd be the greatest players ever. But how did you get into the zone uh, on, you know, that last set and that last point? Yeah, it went to one set all. I won the first set. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I practiced with a guy during the week. I knew his game. And then suddenly the match slipped away from me. He had really long, quite good quality strokes. And I'd lost the second set. And I thought, I've waited two decades for my one opportunity and the match is slipping away. And in, on a clay court tournament, especially in these hot countries, they've got to bag the courts again and they've got to, to water them. So it's a good 10-minute break. And I went, I, went, I went off the court. I sat on these concrete steps away from everybody, and I just sort of I had a talk to myself. And I said, you know, this is your opportunity. Forget about the score. Don't put any pressure on yourself. And you play every point like it's your last. And you just do this. And if you do that for the rest of the set and you lose, that's, the other guy's too good. And in a way, it took all the pressure off myself. Um, and that's what I did. I played every point. I, I, I really concentrated on simply – playing the best quality shot I could at the time. And I forgot about the score. And I guess after, after two decades of having the same dream and getting so close, I mean, um, 
yeah, I, I was into the zone. It probably only happened twice in my life that I felt like this, um, and it was a great feeling. Um, but even after I won, I remember hearing someone scream, you know, come on. And I, I didn't even realize I was screaming. That's how <laughs> far in the zone I was. And I realized it was me screaming out there. Um, yeah, it was. I, so how do I get in there? I, I'm not really sure. Um, but once you're in there, I mean, you can do anything. I love that. I mean, what you said um, just a moment ago was very helpful in, in the type of mindset that you had. And I encourage listeners to stop right now and rewind a little bit and listen to that again. That's great. Um, and so, I mean, I, you know, you were able to also play in not only futures events, but also um, the higher levels. So can you kind of talk us through like how you were able to also play those events as well? Yeah, this goes back to when I was about 16. And I, I had a book, and it was by, I think, a guy called Charles Goffey, who'd coached John McEnroe, and his book was Tournament Tough. And I read this book about 100 times, and very clearly there was a paragraph, and he was talking about people that grounded out on the Futures Tour year after year for a handful of points, you know, crawling up the rankings. When in one week on an ATP, you could, you could literally have a big run and you could tear up into the top 100. And I always kept this in my mind that if I ever achieved an ATP ranking, I was not going to hang around the futures. I was going to um, uh, to back myself, and I was going to try to go for the big time, go ATP qualifying straight away. So as soon as I got the point in Tunisia, I knew that three weeks later when my point came live, I was going to, to literally find ATP qualifiers and challenger qualifying, and I was going to go for the big time. And that's pretty much what I did. Wow, that is. I mean, again, that's also a really cool, cool read because you would assume, you know, yeah. once you get the futures point, you still like have a ton to go. But a lot of people wouldn't think that, you know, with that one, that that one point is like the gateway to being able to find yeah. and play other events. So that's really pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, I guess I, I just should explain at the moment, um, and I put it at the end of the book. Uh, you could do that up to about a couple of years ago. You could get into ATP qualities and challenger qualities with one or two points if the draws were empty. Even Wimbledon, one year, not everyone signed into Wimbledon qualities. So if you had one ATP point, you would have got in. But the ATP changed that a couple of years ago. They made the draws smaller to stop guys like myself getting in with a low ranking. So now the cutoff this year for all the ATP qualities is about 300 in the world. Mm. And next year, uh, the ITF with all the changes they're stopping that. Uh, so what I did next year, unfortunately, will be impossible to do. You've got to go through every level. You can't jump yourself up to ATP qualities, which I think is really sad. I think it's sad too. I mean, because you talked about in, in the book uh, when Andy Murray commented on uh, Marcus Willis, uh, or I think maybe it was Federer who said that, you know, we need more of yep. this to happen. It's so cool when you hear about somebody yep. like that to yep. just get in and it's really a shame that they're kind sure. of closing it off. I mean, I, you know, they have the reasons, but uh, it's it's uh, too bad. Um, yep. yep. And so, um, in your opinion, what were some of the main differences in quality of play that you saw between challenger and futures, and also ATP level? Mm. Uh, I mean, you notice it in the practice. You go to the futures, and a lot of guys they're doing they're doing maybe four hours on the court, but that probably isn't the best quality. They're hitting a lot of balls. And as you turn up to the, the challenges, and then even more so the ATP, I notice that every time those guys are on the court, they're working at something. Um, they're fine-tuning either a serve, 
they're fine-tuning an approach shot. They're not just hitting mindless balls. And that was one of the big differences in the standard of play because often the similarities between the futures and ATP, they're doing the same kind of thing, but they were really fine-tuning. Um, there wasn't any wasted time, especially though the top players. That was probably the main difference. Got you, Greg. And going back to uh, work and playing, how were you able to balance your work schedule with flying to you know all over the globe to these tournaments? Yeah, I mean, after the one year, I had my ATP ranking, and I knew that um, I sort of had to get money again. So I started working in international school in Dubai, but I also knew that I was going to play the ATP qualifying events. So I looked through the calendar. I looked at all the history as when, when these ATP quality events were weak. And I noticed that after a lot of Grand Slams, that the draws were often weaker. So straight after US Open, uh, the China Open was on. And I noticed the Beijing qualifying was when the US Open final was on. And I, I took a gamble. So after Thursday evening, because that's the end of the working week in, in Dubai, I got on the overnight flight and I flew to Beijing. took about eight or nine hours. I got in late at night. They picked me up at the airport, the ATP, and I signed in on the Friday. And I literally, I played qualifying on, on the weekend. And when I lost, I would then go out back to the airport. I'd go on standby and I'd get the next flight back so I could get back to work. And I did this, I think, for five ATP tournaments, flying back and forth around my work, uh, literally on the weekends. Wow. Wow. That's incredible stuff, Greg. Um, yeah. and, and so regarding, I mean, all your incredible experiences, what are some of the greatest lessons you've learned from playing on the pro circuit and, and the challenges in the, uh, the ATP tour events? I guess one of the big, it wasn't so much a shock, but I realized that the top guys were not so far away from where my game was. I started, when I started getting points, I'd be main draw futures, and then I'd play the challenges and ATP. And I'd play guys regularly in the top 300. And I thought these guys are going to be far too good for me. But actually, the matches were quite close. There was often only one or two sort of certain patterns of play that they did better than me. Um, so the biggest lesson was that maybe I wasn't so far from the top players as I, as I thought. And I guess... That was until I played in I played in Doha, the first tournament of the year, and I played Sergi Starkovsky, who was rising at the time, and I, he actually, um, yeah, he, he destroyed me. He was another level. I think he, he quickly raced off to about thirty in the world, um, and my lesson from him was that the top guys, they, as soon as they have a half opportunity, they they they, they attack. On the lower levels, you have time. You can hit sort of a sloppy shot, and they won't kill it straight away. But the top guys, especially people who are top 100 potential, as soon as they had a half chance, they were pushing you into the corners or they were coming in. Um, so the biggest lesson I learned was the top guys. I mean, you have to come out hard. You have to come out with a lot of intensity. And if you have a short ball, I mean, you're, you're putting that away. You don't get second chances. Great, great stuff. Love that, Greg. And... <laughs> A uh, fun one for, I'm sure, everybody here, if you can remember. What was your worst tournament location <laughs> or experience? Uh? Yeah, I sort of always a bit hesitant about saying this because <laughs> uh, people in that country are going to hate me. You don't have to. But I played, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll say it. Um, it's very, very clear. 
Uh, I was playing back in 99 on a tour. My brother was with me. I was surrounded by all my friends. And we were in Morocco in Casablanca. Mm. And before we went, we had all these wonderful images of Casablanca, you know, the, from the movie, which wasn't even shot there, by the way. <laughs> and we went out there and everyone was sick. Everyone got food poisoning. One of the other Australian players ended up in hospital on a drip. It was, it was one of the worst experiences. We were there for two weeks. Everyone hated it. You'd think traveling around the world with your friends would be great. Um, at one point, I noticed a lot of Europe, European players had gone out and they bought cannabis illegally on the beach. They were, they were getting stoned every night. Yeah. People were losing the plot. Um, I was sick every night. I couldn't eat any food. And, yeah, that, that was my number one most hated place in the world, unfortunately. Sorry if any Moroccans are listening. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's maybe changed since then. Hopefully that's all we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> But uh, and and to, okay, let's switch it to a more positive. Uh, favorite country, yep. favorite country to play. Ah, uh, yeah, best experience was also. I mean, a place I noticed it's both time and place. And I played the Ho Chi Minh, the first Ho, pro Ho Chi Minh tournament back in 1999, and this was an amazing place in Vietnam. I guess it was Saigon. There, the, on the center court, half of the center court was decked out in red, and that was purely for the Communist Party. On the back half of the center court, there was a platform and there was a, an American uh, captured American helicopter from the Vietnam War on display. Um, the whole place was it was it was it was crazy. It was um, it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was so so different. And the tournament, people would pay money to come in and watch the future matches. Like there was such a great atmosphere. You felt like you were part of something special in this place. Um, I went back a few years later to Ho Chi Minh and the whole place had changed. They'd gone through an economic revolution and there was McDonald's and Starbucks and everything there and it was different. Um, but back in 99, yeah, Saigon was the best place I played in. Oh, very cool, Greg. Very cool. So what's next for you, Greg? Um, I mean, obviously you've had this great experience and you're still in the game, but what's what's next for Gregory Howe? Yeah, I, I played a couple of Futures um, this awesome. year. Awesome. Uh, even though I'm, I'm 47 years old this year, um, I didn't go so well. I've been coming back from injury, which as you get older um, happens a lot more. But I wanted to play for 30 years. So tennis-wise, I had this in mind. Um, I would like to play a little bit more, even though it's becoming difficult to be competitive. But next year, with all the changes happening with the futures, I think the ITF are taking that away from me. So in terms of pro tennis, um, this could well be the end for me. Uh, I just don't think I'll get into a draw next year for, for different reasons. Um, but I still play tennis. I, I can play all the time. I, I train and I'm playing on the local United Arab Emirates circuit, which starts next week, the first tournament. Awesome. Um, and I intend to play tournaments the rest of my life, um, hopefully in the seniors. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, it's a lifelong sport. Um, every time you compete, yep. it teaches you something and you can always improve. And uh, tennis players are just in generally so healthy um it's just a great sport so um greg so where can we follow you and also where can we find uh your amazing book uh chasing points a season on the pro tennis circuit yeah in the states probably the, the easiest thing is everything's on amazon so if you want to copy the book order it from amazon.com um it came out during the US open it ran out of stock during the first week of the US open but i noticed that they've restocked it they did another printing run so that's the best way to get the book um, if you want to follow me, I, I did start a Twitter account. Um, it's Greg Howe Tennis. 
Uh, if you just type in Greg Howe Twitter, it comes up with a famous American guitarist who I think stole my name. So it's Greg Howe Tennis Twitter. So I, I'm on there if anyone wants to contact me. Shame on him for stealing your name like that. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. And Greg, I mean, I could talk to you, you know, forever, but I know we both have time commitments. But uh, one last question for you that I love asking our audiences, or our guests is, what is one key tip that you can give us to help us improve our tennis games? Ooh. Um, I mean, I, I play every Friday morning with a guy that used to be 40 in the world, a guy called Patrick Coonan. I don't know if you remember him. Made the quarterfinals at Wimbledon way back. And he always screams at me on, at 7 o'clock on Friday morning, footwork, footwork, footwork. Um, you know, everything's about feet. And he, he's right. If your feet are in position, then, um, you know, it sets up the rest of the game. So I guess that's probably, for me, the most important thing. If you're fit, your footwork's good, everything else comes together. Yeah, totally agree with that. I played uh, yesterday. I was a bit rusty. I hadn't played in a while, and my footwork was off, and it didn't really didn't work out yeah. too well, but still enjoyed it. But, uh, Greg, yeah. um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to the Tennis Falls podcast. It truly was a pleasure, and I just wish there were more uh, people like you who went on uh, <laughs> you know, these crazy journeys and then documented it yeah. in a book because uh, it's just so enjoyable. So I uh, really had a lot of fun speaking with you, and thanks so much for your work. And uh, – uh, and uh, yep. continued success, you know, in the in the tournaments, and um, uh, I'm sure we'll chat again soon. So thank you so much, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Maraban. I really enjoyed that. I hope people, if anyone reads the book, that they enjoy it and they feel like they're on the tour because that was the whole idea. Yeah. So thanks, mate. Certainly did. Thanks so much, Greg. All right, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Tennis Files podcast with Gregory Howe and Greg. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast and sharing your adventures and giving us an insight into your fantastic book, which again, I'm really enjoying reading. Uh, actually, um, while I was eating dinner today, I, I was reading the book on my cell phone. So, um, you know, I'm getting, I'm trying to read it every chance I get because it's a really a fun read. And if you'd like to get Greg's book, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash chasing points. And I'd also really appreciate it if you would go and rate the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice and just give it as, uh, however many stars that you feel it deserves. Uh, and I, you know, I really enjoy putting out um, all this content uh, to mainly, first and foremost, uh, help you improve your game. Uh, but sometimes... Uh, along the way, we find great stories like the ones that we heard today from Greg. And I also would like to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Charles R. Swindle. And he said, Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. It's a fantastic quote. And if you'd like to access any of the links mentioned during this podcast, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash 68. As always, thank you so much for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be able to communicate um, what I'm learning and hearing from all my guests to you, and I hope you really enjoy it. And uh, have a fantastic day, week, month, and year, and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.